this week on the Back Table Podcast. I love talking about this stuff and you can tell I've probably thought about it more than any person should about endoleaks. And endoleaks are a unique problem from new technology from EVARS. And it's been a great learning process just finding the different flow channels, different ways an endoleak can exist. So it's a very challenging but extremely interesting subset of patients that I treat and, and, and certainly one of my favorite things to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn and keep up with the latest and greatest and give us feedback through comments. We will start the episode in a minute, but first, a brief learning moment from our sponsor, Inari Medical. This learning moment is from episode 196 on building a successful PERT team with Dr. Karin Gonzalez. What advice would you give to, you know, IRs or other endovascular specialists out there in either private practice or academics that are, that are interested in forming a P response team in order to improve their management of P patients? So I would definitely recommend to those out there interested in creating a PERT program that you start small. Limit the number of people initially involved in the planning process and select the most qualified, <laughs> compassionate, and dedicated people to be part of your PERT team. It's not only important to make a treatment decision as a team, but it's also invaluable to have a support, the support of the team members, especially the pulmonary critical care docs, when you're doing the procedures, especially in those uh, critically ill patients. So if you have a strong team and a real dedicated team, they'll be with you in the middle of the night helping you manage the massive PE patients. So I think it's very important that the, the physicians are selected, you know, very, very um, carefully. You posted a, a pretty cool case on Twitter. It was a big lollipop thrombus mm -hmm. that, uh, that you got out. Yeah, so I think um, that was a big PE that we pulled Dude, out and got stuck like at the, toe, <laughs> the tip of the catheter. That wasn't that was a little exciting, um, but I think there is a couple of things that we're incorporating in the per team that we haven't uh, seen before, and one is clot in transit. Uh -huh. And also uh, vegetations on either the tricuspid Ooh. valve or on a pacer leads, you know, so cardiac leads. So we have used the suction thrombectomy devices in those uh, circumstances. Um, and um, that has definitely been incorporated into our uh, PE response team. This learning moment was brought to you by Inari Medical. Now back to the episode. I'm Sabine as your host today, and I'd like to welcome Dr. David Kim, an interventional radiologist from Texas Radiology Associates in Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Dave. Well, thanks, Sabine. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. You know, our listeners probably don't know this, but Dave, uh, you work with the back table godfather, Dr. Aaron Fritz. Yes, yes. <laughs> give, give us the dirt. Give us the scoop. I mean, how is it working with him? And don't worry, he's not listening. So what, what what's it like working with Dr. Fritz? Well, Aaron, he's been an ex-partner of mine and getting to know him and what he's about and his energy that he brings to interventional radiology and then, of course, back table. It's impressive to watch. And he's certainly, just talking to him, has uh, inspired me to be here, do a podcast and, and maybe get out there what I'm doing and what I have a passion for. So it's been great working with him. 
Yeah, I mean, Aaron talked to me and that's what we're going to be talking about today. A really, really cool niche practice that you've developed and basically in a, a referral center for endoleak treatment and, and something that I always imagined and dreamed of doing in my own practice, but never got there. I do a decent amount, but nothing like what I've heard about you. So I'm really excited to learn about this and, and have our listeners learn from your experience. Give us a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up starting the practice, but we'll go into that more in detail later. Yeah. So based out of Plano, Texas, and I'm part of a large uh, radiology group of 130 radiologists. There's about 20 interventionalists in my group. I'm the only one that really treats endoleaks. And so that in and of itself is a uh, is pretty big advantage. So everything gets funneled to me and, you know, worked in a great hospital, suburban hospital, 150 beds. And uh, it's attached via SkyBridge to Vascular Heart Hospital, Baylor Plano. So that makes it extremely nice. And That's great. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing about that is I don't have to share a lab or an angio suite with the vascular surgeons <laughs> and the cardiologists because they're in the other building. And so I pretty much have complete control. And, and so I was very fortunate with that setup and I, and I knew it would be great to develop a practice that way. Well, that's great. Now you're saying you're the only one who does endoleaks. In training, even in my training, I, I was very not exposed to endoleaks. Was this something that you knew a lot before starting your practice or you kind of just learned on the fly and through learning from others? Yeah, no, it was definitely trial and error. So I, I came out into private practice in 2000. During my fellowship, 99 to 2000, of course, we're giving away all these uh, years here, but that's Really, when you know, <laughs> when I was a fellow, hey, we were approached to try to treat a couple of endoleaks, and it, it was just flat out flail at that point. And so, just over time, developed, hey, this doesn't work. This will probably work. And now, for the probably the past fifteen years, having developed, I think the best method to treat them, most consistent way, of course, with direct puncture. Okay, great, great. We're going to talk about that technique in a second, but. What is your endoleak? I mean, we keep on talking about this endoleak practice. What is it? I mean, are you the endoleak guy in Dallas and everyone knows that? How did you get to that level? I mean, what, what is it? Well, I think there are probably three or four guys or gals that are, are centers in Dallas that probably treat a good number of endoleaks from what I can gather. Up north, my practice is in the north, northern suburbs of Dallas. I really don't know of another physician that is doing endoleaks at a volume that I am doing. So it certainly didn't start out that way. You know, I assume most doctors would send their patients down to the medical school or to Baylor, Dallas, uh, you know, down south to the academic centers. But there's a lot of volume, a lot of patients that need this treatment. So eventually they started sending them to me, mostly probably by initial failures and then finally trying to find another alternative. You know, I have to be honest. Although I have great relationships with vascular surgeons, cardiologists, and other vascular specialists, I don't think it's just because they like me. I mean, I, I think it's because they just didn't have another good alternative to send their patients to. And, and so when I started using the combination coils and onyx and getting higher success rates, I think the word got out there and it, it quickly developed. And before I knew it, you know, I was getting one a week which for endoleaks, you know, in a year, that's, that's a lot. That's a ton. Yeah. I was just going to ask you your volume. I mean, it sounds like you're doing about one a week, which is insane. And yeah, I think the majority of people who are actually doing endovast, you know, the, the primary EVAR, a lot of them may not be familiar with more than coils and liquid embolics. And so 
these are complex treatments. Endoleak is very complex. I'm learning things. So, you know, it makes sense that you get experience through a lot of trial and error and the volume that you do. How did you build that volume? I mean, we do a decent amount of aortas in my practice. The endoleaks we treat are really our own aortas. I have yet to get referrals for endoleaks. How did you build that? Well, I think just by being, well, number one, at a very highly vascular centric center with a heart hospital, I mean, which has a geographic draw of surrounding states. So four or five states around Texas and within Texas, uh, northern Texas. So just a nice referral geography, number one. And then really just maintaining, I think, relationships with other vascular specialists, vascular surgeons, CV surgeons, cardiologists. You know, when everybody was fighting for peripheral arterial disease and venous disease, I kind of saw the future and I just didn't compete for that. And rather, I kind of pivoted to just treating complex vascular lesions with embolization, which, you know, these other physicians just weren't pursuing at that time. And that was, I think, number one. And by the way, I've got a full-time scheduling uh, assistant at the hospital. And that's been, I think, a key to the growth of my practice as well, just, just to have access. So one phone number, one contact that people can call. I mean, that's always helpful. So the setup and the support has been good. Yeah. Just to your point about scheduling, it is a hard system to get a good scheduling service. We face our own challenges. And so that's definitely a very good, you know, general tip for any practice is just a really good scheduling system. So what about, I've always tried to utilize my reps because we perform, I, I, I talk to my aortic reps, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you know, we perform endoleak repairs. I'm like, oh yeah, we, we know people who might need it, but still, I don't know, I can't get that to materialize into a referral. Usually I feel like the primary operator doing the aorta at another institution may or may not feel like they should be doing the endoleak repair. Is that a challenge you see, or you've just established your reputation to a degree in your area that, hey, you have an endoleak sent to Dr. Kim? Yeah, well, I will say that a big promoter of mine has been a rep from Turumo. And of course I use their calls almost exclusively for endoleaks and their Turumo Azure hydrogel expanding coils which of course we can talk about some more later, but uh, the rep that works for them, he, he's really been a cheerleader for me. And, and he goes around DFW, the Metroplex, doing cases with different physicians and different practices, academic and private, and has really put my name out there as well. So I'll, I'll definitely give him some credit for helping uh, get referrals. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, you know, I, I was thinking aortic rep, you know, that's who I've talked about. Maybe that's something that I might you know, explore, you know, my coil, my, my different uh, embolization reps to see, you know, to build my own, which I would love to make uh, very similar to your practice. So we've been telling, we've been talking about endoleaks. So we're talking primarily about type two endoleaks, right? That's your forte in this practice. Obviously type ones and others you fix with larger repairs, but type two, can you define it? What is a type two endoleak? Sure, sure. Type two endoleaks are due to retrograde reverse flow from either a lumbar, inferior mesenteric, median sacral, what have you, back into the excluded aneurysm sac, which causes endopressure flow and sometimes enlargement and uh, sometimes rupture, rarely, status post EVAR AAA. And yeah, they are definitely the most common, but 
I'll tell you, the, the more and more I do, I see different combinations of inflow-outflow. I've even had an inflow lumbar outflow around the neck of the EVAR back into the lumen. So it was kind of combination type 2, type 1 almost. That's like a type type 2, type 1A, like reverse. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So That's a pretty high-pressure inflow then, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the way it's kind of the referral pattern or practice pattern in, in my area is all the type ones and, you know, whether it's uh, 1A or B and the, the vascular surgeons are taken care of and they're sending me pretty much the type twos. But I've gotten some some odd cases over the years. I've even had a an EVAR, Sespos EVAR, endoleak, enlargement, rupture, and then it was a contained rupture and they send it to me to fix from a percutaneous endo treatment and took care of it. And, and the, the guy did well. So the variations are pretty much endless, I, I think. Talk about a stat endoleak repair right there for sure. <laughs> Super stat. Okay. So just for our listeners who might not know inflow and outflow, I, I know when I was in residency or fellowship, it was kind of made sense. But wh what do you mean by that inflow and outflow to a type two endoleak? Yeah, so for an endoleak to persist and progress within an excluded aneurysm sac and to maintain flow, of course, you have to have a pressure gradient from high to low pressure, just like, you know, with any fluid that is flowing, it's going to flow downhill or by gravity or some other force. So the inflow artery brings the blood flow into the sac, and then the blood's got to swirl around, switch around, do its thing, and then go out an outflow vessel to maintain that flow and be persistent. And uh, of course, the body's ability for vascular regeneration really is cause of these type 2 endo leaks. And it's just due to the human body's ability to maintain arterial flow. Uh, right? And I always tell my patients, hey, if you didn't have this ability, you know, you'd occlude an artery and your leg would just fall off, right? I mean, so. The human body's so impressive, right? I mean, that's the type of inflow outflow. I mean, Typically, you know, we see inflow via the IMA and outflow lumbars, but you know, what makes it reverse? Sometimes it's inflow lumbar and outflow IMA. Is there anything physiologic? I don't know of anything, but do you know of anything that makes it one way or the other? It's just flip of a coin and it's something you can never really know on a CT at least. For sure. I, I've put some thought into that, but yeah, it's it seems pretty random to me. And I think it's just a, an equilibrium that is reached inside the sack for whatever reason and one wins out and once that flow pattern starts it's like siphoning gas or fluid somewhere once once it starts yeah it just goes in that direction and maintains yeah and the, the supply is endless so it just keeps yes, on going yes exactly <laughs> what about your workups obviously the patients are coming to you already with a documented endo leak on ct i'm presuming do you have any particular type of protocol in ct that you use and then the follow-up I'm going to ask you is about MRA. Are you using any twist or, or dynamic imaging on MRA to evaluate these endoleaks? Well, most of my patients are coming from vascular specialists, vascular surgeons, cardiologists that um, have a pretty good handle on doing multi-phase CTA for follow-up. And they're following these patients every six months or so, depending on the rate of growth. And if the rate of growth is pretty stable, they're or non-existent. I think it's an annual CTA that most will, will do. So they're coming to me pretty much all worked up and teed up, ready to go. And most of my refers are guys that I've been working with a long time. So you know, when they come to me for an initial consult, I've got the CTA. Pretty much we have a discussion and 
We go over the procedure and we're ready to go. MRA, I really have not needed to use. And uh, I really can't see an advantage unless there was a, I guess, a case that really uh, was confusing or we couldn't get a handle on. But uh, no, I haven't had to use that much. Yeah, I, I too have thought I, you know, I was looking up some MRA protocols. I thought it'd be cool, especially for just a routine follow-up of our AVARs, but I haven't really found a good one yet. Now, you mentioned, you know, you have seen and several endo leaks are there without sacro. So those you recommend to just watch, right? Do you ever intervene on those? Or are you only intervene on ones that start growing? Yeah. So the ones that grow for sure, and we should probably mention growth being just a few millimeters a year is thought to be significant. And of course, you know, I'll have some that have grown a centimeter in six months to a year. We get those in quickly. And it's like, and tell those patients, hey, don't call for hard. Don't do anything. Just wait till you come to your embolization, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, a centimeter a year would be yeah, scary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, the ones that don't grow, I, I think some vascular surgeons will get nervous if they see a large endoleak that's persistent on repeat CTAs. And we'll go ahead and treat them when, you know, you see very high intensity flow channel. Large area. Yeah. You know that that's going to probably be something significant, especially if the patient's younger and you've got a lot of years left. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and treat those. But yeah, mostly going by scent growth. Got it. So you decide to treat the patient. You already mentioned you are a direct stick kind of person. That That's your preferred approach. Tell us a little bit about your direct stick technique. Do you stick in CT? Do you use cone beam? And go from there. Well, I should just mention that my success rate was pretty much average, which I think was probably 50% or less for most anybody that was treating endoleaks back in earlier years. And and when I went to direct stick, you know, you know paraspinal lumbar for pretty much 100% of my patients and this combination coal and, and onyx treatment, my success rates really went from about 50% to 90, 95% where, I mean, I was hardly getting anybody returning for recurrence. So it made a dramatic shift in success. So really haven't looked back. And so direct puncture, you know, we could talk probably an hour about that if we really wanted to. I mean, it's really evolved. And of course I do everybody in CT. I use a traditional CT scanner, a helical CT, get everything done there. And of course, patients prone under general anesthesia. We just kind of slide them off the CT scanner onto the stretcher, take them to the angio suite and just slide them right back onto the angio suite and continue with the embolization component. Okay. That's great. That was one of my questions. How do you make sure you don't move the needle? Are you using what, a 21 gauge needle for the stick or are you doing something else like an AccuStick or something like that? Well, I will use a blunt tip 18 gauge Hawkins. And the Hawkins, it's got a stylet. It's got a sharp stylet and it's got a blunt stylet. And so the blunt stylet is supposed to be more of a dissecting type of needle. So I'll use that mainly to get Right when I get to the posterior aspect of the aneurysm sac, you know, of course, you got some inflow, outflow arteries, veins, what have you there. So to prevent any piercing, of course, it's not 100%, but I think it does help bleed risk. And then right when I get to the, the sac, uh, then I'll put in the sharp stylet, boom, punch through. But I'll use the dissecting tip right to the edge of the sac before I get in. Okay. Do you measure pressures when you get into the, the flow for kind of academic reasons? Do you measure them at all? No, no, I really have not been doing that. It's a good thought. I was wondering, I just, you know, just seeing what the pressure is, just, but there's no, I mean, obviously if the aneurysm sac is growing, it's not going to change your treatment, but I always wondered, and people talk about it being lower pressure, like 
it's just interesting. But so once you move to the Angio Suite, you change your needle for what? You put a what do you put into the sack then? Yeah. So and and I do this in CT actually. So I'll pull the needle out over an Aplatz wire and I'll just get a typical five French vascular sheath, twenty five centimeters, and just get that well positioned into the lumen where I have probably two or three centimeters, just because I know. Uh, when they're moving the patient, you know, the, the abdomen may decompress and things are going to move around. So I just want to make sure that I have uh, good access, but I'll leave the Amplatz wire in there. And on the skin, and this is what I found is a little bit important too, I'll suture the sheet down at the skin, but also bring the suture material into the fastening component at the hub of the sheath just to really secure it, keep it from moving. And I always use a, a nylon ethylon suture. I made the mistake of using a silk one time and really the friction coefficient, believe it or not. You cut the sheet? Well, no, it made a difference. It, it allowed the sheet to move in and out of the suture and it came out without me knowing and I almost lost access. And so, yeah, a nylon suture securing the sheet, it's the little things that I've kind of learned over the years. Yeah, nylon, good to know. Yeah, one time I used a silk suture for a braided sheet or something. And I literally just guillotined the sheet because I was, I think I was tightening too hard. But anyways, I thought that maybe happened. So that's great. You get the five French sheath, then you take to IR and you do a contrast injection. You get all your info there. Yeah. And, and then of course with CT and I've got the CTA, I will have, I'll access directed toward what I think is the epicenter of the flow. But I do want to go through some thrombosed clot as well, because I, I don't want to stick right into, because if I lose access or whatever, then, you know, you got a leak, right? So you kind of want to go through some clot projected toward the epicenter of the leak. And so I know that I'm in the general right direction. So when I get them over to the angio suite, I'll, I'll just put in, you know, selective catheter and I use a four French glide cath to start out. And then I just kind of, you know, probe around, inject real gently because I don't know if I've got an outflow IMA on my hands or not. And so I'll inject gently, get an aortogram, see if I can kind of determine where the real flow channels are and start off there. And then at that point, I just start deploying coils and just progressively go around the flow channels. You know, if I think I know where the inflow or outflow is, I'll of course focus on those areas. But really how my technique has evolved over the years is it's not being too obsessive about finding the inflow, outflow channel and just occluding those because I used to just try to occlude those, but then you'd get a recurrence. And so I know that you've got to do a lot more and you really just need to extensively fill in the excluded sac to prevent recollateralization and, and reestablishment of the endoleak. And so now I just put in a ton of embolic material. You know, I always describe it to my patients that I'm either making a bird's nest or I'm building a highway inside your aneurysm sac. And of course I tell them, hey, look, I'm, I'm forming a matrix like rebar in a highway or the grass or twigs in a bird's nest with the coils. And, and so I just lay down the coils everywhere and then I'll inject the onyx, which fills in the nooks and crannies of this cage or embolic mass that I'm building. And then that just fills in everywhere. And of course, onyx will sometimes go into the outflow vessel. It'll kind of creep up to where the inflow is, but really just throwing in the kitchen sink into these things. And, and that's really what I think is, uh, has made the success rates high and the return rates very low. And your Terumo and Medtronic reps probably love yes, you. Yes, yes. Every week. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so one question I have is, do you try to select the inflow and outflow vessels to embolize those 
in addition to space filling? Are you just trying to find them and then you just go to town filling that space in the sack and then injecting on it? Yes. So uh, great question. I, I will go to where I think the inflow is. And if I can get a catheter right at the inflow area and, and deposit some coils, I know I've already got a great start on that one. And then just really pack coils very tightly to where I think the inflow is and just kind of progressively work my way back. And then the outflow, and sometimes, you know, your catheter just by fortuitous chance will just plop into the outflow vessel and you're like, oh man, you know, it's always better to be lucky, right? Better lucky than good. Yeah. Better lucky than good. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, put some onyx or, or coal into that area as well. And then just kind of fill in the rest. But one thing, a concept change that has occurred to me over the years is again, not just causing acute thrombosis to control the endo leak, which of course will take care of the problem initially and on follow-up CTAs, but to get a more durable and stable treatment, which I think is caused by forming a structure that will create stability and tensile strength so that it prevents the stretching and enlargement of the sac and subsequent rupture, right? So for me, you know, I'm looking more endpoint or goal, not acute thrombosis, but preventing sac enlargement and rupture for the life of the patient. Cause you know, of course, no patient wants to come in for a retreatment. Yeah. So it makes sense. I mean, you, your goal, your endpoint is space filling that area, which is why liquid embolic is so nice. And a lot of people don't know how to use Onyx if they haven't had experience with it. We will get back to the episode in a minute, but first a brief learning moment from our sponsor, Hednari Medical. I did notice uh, in reviewing some stuff that you had, you had contributed to a study in, I think it was in the annals of, of uh, thoracic surgery on uh, surgical treatment of PE. And so, you know, because of that, I have to ask you, you know, in which circumstances are you guys going straight to surgery for this? Now, pretty much never. <laughs> that was my guess. I was just curious. Yeah, it, it really is never. Now, I will tell you that the only time that we would push surgery or, or a surgical intervention would be patients who have a clot in transit and a patent okay. PFO with clot extending into the left atrium. That's when we are sending patients to the operating room. But pretty okay. much, no, we're not, they're not going to the operating room anymore. They're pretty much going to suction thrombectomy because we can get rapid results um, with that technique. And I, I think that there's been, you know, really across the board, a shift in the endovascular treatment of PE because of these catheters. And I think the data is still catching up and we're starting to see a bit more supporting it. But can you tell us about your experiences with this device and really how your approach to treating PE has changed since their introduction? So the large bore thrombectomy devices, and particularly the flow retriever device, which is a aspiration catheter, comes in three sizes, 16 French, 20 French and 22 French. And it just has a large bore side port and an aspiration syringe. It's really easy to use. It tracks incredibly well, despite being intimidated by the size initially. It really is easy. It's an easy tool to use. The suction thrombectomy device is very uh, reliable in the sense that it can aspirate acute thrombus, subacute thrombus, and even chronic thrombus. Um, huh. I'm surprised what we are able to extract in a few aspirations, and most importantly, just how dramatically better a patient gets um, on the angiography table with these devices. It's really a 
big paradigm shift in uh, the way we manage these patients. So I'm um, very glad that they have been developed and become more uh, simple to use. So I think patients are definitely getting better care with the advent of the PE response team at Jefferson. When you have a team of experts sitting there saying, yes, we all agree that this is the best thing for the patient, there's less reluctance. So the patient doesn't wait. This learning moment was brought to you by Inari Medical. Inari Medical is a medical device company focused on developing products to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases. Inari has developed two minimally invasive, novel, catheter-based mechanical thrombectomy devices that are designed to remove large clots from large vessels and eliminate the need for thrombolytic drugs. The company purpose-built its products for specific characteristics of the venous system and the treatment of the two distinct manifestations of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, deep vein thrombosis, and pulmonary embolism. Find out more information at inarimedical.com. Now back to the episode. What about other liquid inbox? Have you ever explored glue? No, you know, I, I haven't. Onyx has turned out to be fairly easy to work with. And I like the way it interacts. I've, of course, talked to other physicians that have used glue and maybe a little bit trickier. You kind of have a time sink. You have all the time in the world you want with Onyx. I have not tried glue because you basically inject glue and that's it. Like you inject, you got five, five six seconds <laughs> or, or more if you got more dilute and, and you just pray. It'd definitely be interesting to talk to some more people who use glue and see what the good and bad is. But Onyx is definitely... Uh, more control. And there's obviously other liquid embolics coming to the market soon. So direct stick is your approach. Do you do much transarterial work anymore going through the arc of Ryolan and all that crap going to the IMA? Or you're just like, why spend 130 centimeters of catheter and do all that when I can just stick it? Yeah, no, that, that of course brings back many memories. Frustrating Hours in the angio suite trying to negotiate around one of those arcs. And in fact, that's how I would get most of my early referrals were vascular specialists that, that had tried that. And it's like, okay, well, go ahead, give it a shot. But I know I'll be seeing that patient here in six months because the rate of failure is just so high. It's yeah. endless. You're just, you don't have any control. You're, you know. So I agree. Now, a variation of a direct approach is a direct stick is a trans cable. Uh, you know, people have talked about, I've, I've not done that where you stick from the IVC. If the endoleak is approachable that way, I thought that was, it was neat, but I think that's a very individualized, small case by case process to go trans cable. Something that I've explored, and I don't know if you've done, and, and we won't go into it too much, but paragraphed, have you done any of that where you go from the groin and you actually go side by side the lip of the limb? And you go up into the aortic sac. Have you tried any of that? No, I really haven't. And first, my thought on the going transcava, my thought is, why put a hole in a perfectly good IVC? So True. <laughs> why put a hole in it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and if it's my IVC, I don't think anybody's going transcaval. So uh, I wouldn't do it to anybody. I agree. I haven't done one. But I have had to look at other approaches when you've got an EVAR graph because usually everything is left paraspinal on the left side. And really, you have to just be careful of the left ureter coming down and just avoid the left ureter. But yeah, if you have a graph that's pretty much occupying the entire left side and you can't, and you're 
kind of blocked on that side. Sometimes. Yeah, if it's laying on that side. Yeah, and that, that'll happen more frequently than you'd think. And then you have to go right paraspinal. And then, of course, the IVC is sitting right there. So, so I have inched between the IVC and the spine and the sac to get in that way. And again, using a dissecting type of technique to not pierce the IVC and, and get in that the way. The Hawkins is yeah, helpful. Yeah, no, it's that. been very yeah. helpful. And fortunately, I've been able to get into pretty much any sack. And also, obviously, once you get in, you can kind of direct and get to where you need to go. Yeah, totally. And then I'll give two cents on, I, I don't know, I, I think because I like to try new things and I have fun and, and see where it gets me is my group has had fun with the paragraph technique. I mean, we've just, it's kind of funky when you think about it, just like you're actually like going side by side the limb and into the aortic sac. And we've had really good ones. We've had ones that don't work, but it's been kind of fun. So if you're ever bored one day with your high volume and, and want to change, you can try it out. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> It's fun. It seems. When it works, it works, right? <laughs> once you have that access, I mean, it's probably nice uh, access with whatever you want, right? I mean, you can just get whichever sheet you want up there. Yeah, once yeah. it's in there and you... There's been times when we've gone up and then we're just stuck in the mural thrombus and you can direct, but the majority of the time that we've done it, again, nowhere near the volume of your practices, your freaking sheath just lands up right in the beautiful center of that aortic sac endoleak and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> and like, you can just go everywhere and eject as much coils and onyx as you want. You're just like, whoa, you know? <laughs> and so it, that's been kind of fun. But that aside, so... I need to make sure that we get some Hawkins needles on our inventory shelf now. But what is your follow-up? Do you end up following up these patients then? You send them back to the referrals? I try not to have too much redundancy where, you know, you got two doctors doing the same thing. And some physicians like to follow their patients or, or some will say, hey, no, you can take it over. And so I order a ton of CTs and uh, CTAs on, on patients uh, and also do a lot of renal ablations as well. So I'm ordering scans all the time. You're the multi-phasic CT yeah, guy. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> you're, the, you're the triple, quadruple phase CT Exactly. Guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm irradiating mankind more than they should be, right? No, it's good. That's what they call me because, I mean, I like my multi-phasic studies for sure. <laughs> yeah, I like to get it all done the right way. Well, that's good. We've talked about some tips, but like, especially for some of these that you have done that have been a failed endoleak repair and come to you? Anything kind of for our listeners should know if they want to start one of these practices or do something similar to you, some words of wisdom for them? Well, I think really, if you just know that, well, as IRs, and of course, you and I are interventional radiologists, our key, our really secret weapon is our CT skills. And uh, I think vascular surgeons, cardiologists, if they knew how to do CT guided procedures, I wouldn't be talking to you about this, you know, and be game over at that point. And so that really is our unique skill set that gives us, you know, advantage over any other specialty is being able to do that guidance and accurately, safely, consistently get that access, translumbar and everything else. I, I think it's is going to be the second option. So if you can get good access, never lose access. And one thing about getting access, uh, you know, I used to have patients come back and say, hey, I have a, I have a little bit of back pain. So I thought maybe it's because I put the sheath through the paralumbar muscles. And so I started going lateral to the, to the muscles and, and through the fat. So you just go in skin, fat, aorta. But what I realized that that just, it took away a lot of the stability of the sheath. And so I was having more problems with the sheath kind of wanting to come out of the aorta while I'm pushing the coils because of course the action reaction type 
deal. So I started going more closer to the spine, going through the muscles for more stability. And so that has been consistently more stable as well. So the last thing you want to do is put a patient under general anesthesia, go through all this four-hour process, and then lose access. So I would say really focus on getting good, stable access. So you know, your, your failure rate will stay low because once you lose access and the patient's prone, I mean, it's game over. For me, it's, that's the end of the case. I'm not going back to CT and coming back. We were canceling for that day. I got 10 other cases that I need to do that day. So I would say get good access and try this combination to Rimo coils and, and onyx. I mean, it's really worked for me. I, I think just kind of that concept of building a lattice and not going in there and just putting a little here, putting a little there and think you're done. Just really go for a one-time deal. I mean, you're going to get this done. You got one shot at it, get this patient done so that they, they never come back for another recurrence. Yeah. No, no, that's great. I, I think having that stable access is key because yeah, the last thing you want to do is do all that and go, I, I, that's just bad news, you know? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's really great. I mean, it definitely speaks to your volume and your experience of, of being able to do these endoleaks are complex and the patients benefit from getting to go to someone who really knows what they're doing. Thanks, Dave. We really appreciate you coming on, you know, imparting all this wisdom upon me and, and our listeners. Well, it's definitely uh, my pleasure. And, and, and I love talking about this stuff. And you can tell I've probably thought about it more than any person should about endoleaks and Every endoleak, I think, is uh, unique. Endoleaks are a unique problem from new technology, from EVARs. And it's been a great learning process, just finding the different flow channels, different ways an endoleak can exist. So it's a very, it's, it's a challenging, but extremely interesting subset of patients that I treat and, and, and certainly one of my favorite things to do. So I love talking about it. Yeah, it's definitely a fun, fun visiting with you and, uh, and discussing this. Awesome. Thanks to uh, Nessa, sound engineer, and everyone else on the Backtable team. And uh, yeah, Dave, we uh, look forward to meeting you in person one of these days, too. Take care, man. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.